0: Hi, I'm Andrew Claven. and I and Michael Knowles and everyone here at The Daily Wire are really thrilled to be back for a second season of Another Kingdom. All of you, our listeners, made it possible by tuning in, and I promise we are going to repay you with a season that takes the story to a whole new level. Be sure to head over to dailywire.com and become a subscriber to get early access to our episodes ad-free. Now, you remember what happened in the first season, Austin Lively, a young Hollywood hanger-on, walked through a door and found himself in a world of magic and intrigue. If you're not caught up in the first season, don't worry. Everything you need to know is explained in the story. And now, season two of Another Kingdom.
1: So now I was a hunted man, hunted, haunted, brokenhearted. I looked in the motel mirror. Was that really me? I was 30 years old and I looked like death, like death on a Monday morning after a weekend binge. A week ago, four days ago even, I was Austin Lively, boy failure Hollywood schmuck, a wannabe movie maker who never made a movie a writer who sold one script straight out of film school, then faded away to become the shadow of an L.A. nobody. I was a reader for a crappy production company named Mythos. I was also a hypochondriacal depressive who had lost all hope of ever having the big career of his dreams. Funny, I never thought I would miss being a dreamless, hypochondriacal, depressive nobody. But those were the days, all right. Now, my life was gone. My job was gone. My friends were gone. The cops were trying to pin a murder on me, and all-powerful billionaire Serge Orozco wanted me dead. My family, my mom, my dad, my brother, were all in Orozco's pay. Only my kid sister Riley was above suspicion, and guess what? She was nuts. Plus, she'd gone missing. Even her insane conspiracy videos had vanished off the Internet. And all that trouble I was in? That was just in this world, the real world. What other world was there? Glad you asked. Galliana. The Eleven Lands, a magical, mystical brain tumor of an hallucination I seem to walk into without warning from time to time. Could happen any time I went through a door. And if things were crap here, believe me, it was nothing compared to the way they were in that lunatic fantasy. The woman who loved me there, Lady Betharay, the woman I was supposed to defend and protect, was dead, murdered. Her husband, Lord Iron, the tyrant of the country, and Curtin, his pet wizard, wanted to capture and torture me. I was supposed to be on a quest to find the Emperor, Anastasius, who would restore the wise Queen Elinda to her throne. I know, it sounded ridiculous to me, too. But, ridiculous or not, it was a job for a knight in shining armor. A fighting man of brave heart and right belief. Not some SoCal dickhead in a cheap motel. That's where I was now. A motel so cheap they let me pay in cash. A rundown hole on a small highway just south of Salinas. I was waiting for darkfall there so I could finish my run to the Bay Area. It was too dangerous to try it in the daylight. The cops might be on the lookout for me. And Orozco's bald-headed thug, the guy I called Billiard Ball, was almost certainly on my trail as well. But somehow I had to get there. Had to find my sister, had to find the manuscript she might or might not have, a novel called Another Kingdom, which seemed to have some power to connect this crazy world to that crazy other one, I turned away from the mirror. I looked around the room. Room six in the Shangri-La Motel, a cinder block rectangle. The cinder blocks were painted urine yellow. The carpet was sewagey brown. There was a double bed with a floral bedspread that was mingled green and red, sort of like vomit. There was a particle board dresser with a lamp on it under the mirror. There was a TV and a cheap table and a couple of cheap chairs. There was a locked door that I guess connected to the next room over. Beside the table, there was a small window. It looked out onto the parking lot and onto the rest of the one-story U-shaped barracks-like motel. Through the misty veil of the privacy curtains, I could watch the light dying over the drab highway. As soon as dark came, I'd be on the road again. I moved to the bed. I lay down on the vomit-colored bedspread, my hands clasped behind my head. I looked up at the ceiling. My heart felt like ashes. That was the odd thing about Galeana. It was an acid trip of a fantasy world filled with ogres and centaurs and fairies and the like. It couldn't be real. But when you came back, you brought your wounds with you and the wounds were real. And so was your grief. My hand went to the chain I wore around my neck, down to the golden locket that hung on the end of it. It had belonged to bethere I pulled the chain up over my head and held the locket up in front of me. I pressed the clasp and the locket opened. There was a portrait inside a miniature painting of queen elinda i gazed on her serene and regal and exquisitely feminine face engraved on the locket's other half was a coat of arms a sword across an open hand and the queen's motto let wisdom reign and each man go his way i reread the words i could hear my mother's arch response what's wisdom i wonder i had no idea As I lay there gazing at the picture, I thought I felt a strange heat coming off the metal of the locket, a strange power. It seemed to grow heavier in my hand, heavy as a stone. Quickly, on instinct, I snapped the locket shut and held it tight. And something happened, something weird. For a moment, I lost myself in a kind of rapt otherness. The motel room disappeared from around me. I was in a different place, a place I knew, The house where I'd grown up in Berkeley, the living room, I could see it. I could hear a child crying, not just crying, screaming, hysterical, terrified. It was so real, so startling, I loosed my hold on the locket and let it drop to my chest. At once, the otherness, the image, the memory, whatever it was, vanished. I was back in the motel, back on the bed. When I tentatively picked up the locket again, it wasn't heavy anymore. No power came off it. The experience was over. It had lasted only a second. It was easy to convince myself that I had imagined it. Just nerves, that's all. So I lay there, holding the locket, thinking of Beth Missing her. Blaming myself for not being man enough to protect her. I watched as the shadows in the small room shifted as the evening came on outside. Then, finally, it was dark. Time to go. With the locket still in my hand, I rolled off the bed, there was nothing to pack. I had nothing with me. I ditched my phone so no one could trace me. I'd stopped at an ATM near LA to stock up on cash. I couldn't use credit cards. They could trace those too. I would dismantled the GPS in my car. No internet, no social media. I was invisible, and I was utterly alone. I crossed the shit brown carpet to the door. I opened the door onto the night outside. There was Billiard Ball. He stood gigantically on the threshold framed in the doorway with the parking lot lights glaring behind him. Before I could react, he jabbed me in the neck with a stun gun. The electric blast sent me reeling back into the room, convulsing, down to the floor. I dropped to the carpet, jerking and shuddering. My muscles were locked up, immobile. All I could do was lie there and judder and watch as Billiard Ball stepped calmly into the room and calmly shut the door behind him. His enormous shoulders were packed into a leather jacket. His muscles bulged through the thin sweater he wore underneath. He looked down at my quivering body without a smile, without a sneer, without any emotion at all. He hardly seemed interested in what he saw. He reached into his jacket and slid the little stun gun into his left inside pocket. Then he reached across into his right inside pocket and drew out a small leather case. Terror exploded inside me as I watched him unzip the case and deftly remove a syringe. I made a horrible, helpless, gurgling noise in my throat as I battled to get control of my body. It was no use. My muscles had been severed from my will. Billiard Ball was going to poison me, kill me, and I couldn't do a thing to stop him. They would find me in this crappy motel room, dead of what seemed like natural causes. My mother and father would pretend it was a tragedy. My brother would tell himself it couldn't be helped. The police would lie. No one would ever know that Orozco had had me murdered to preserve his crazy plan to establish the Orozco Age, a utopia on Earth. I had to move. I had to run. I had to. But I couldn't. My muscles were strung out tight. Billiard Ball knelt at my feet. He laid the syringe on the carpet. He calmly untied my right sneaker. He calmly removed my sock, like a mother undressing a toddler. He was going to inject me between the toes where no one would find the needle mark. I gurgled, I struggled, I made a high-pitched scree of useless effort. I could not move anything. And then I could, a little. My hand, the fingers of my right hand, by focusing all my effort, all my will into my fingers, I could stretch them out even as they went on trembling violently. I could bend my right wrist, just a little. That horrid, helpless noise kept spitting out between my teeth as I battled to shift my forearm. Meanwhile, Billiard Ball finished taking off my sock. He set it down on the floor by his left knee, next to the sneaker he'd already removed. It was all very neat, very efficient. He wanted to be able to find the sock and sneaker quickly so he could put them back on my corpse after I was dead. I moved my hand across the carpet. A little. Half an inch. I touched something. Something cold. The locket. Beth locket. I had dropped it when I fell. I fought to close my fingers around it. It was like bending bars of iron. My whole body shook violently with the effort, my spine thrumming like a bowstring. But slowly, 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 my fingers closed. Having set my sock down beside my sneaker, billiard ball now turned to pick up the syringe lying on the carpet by his right knee. I closed my hand. I gripped the locket in my fist. Like an explosion, I felt that odd power radiate off the metal again. The power pulsed into my flesh. Flashes of vision interrupted the reality of the moment, the house where I grew up, the living room, a child screaming somewhere. I fought to stay focused on the real world, the motel, my swiftly approaching murder. The power of the locket flowed into my hand, my wrist, my arm, giving me more strength. I lifted the locket from the floor. It felt heavy as it had before, heavy as a rock. Billiard Ball sniffed absent-mindedly as he lifted the syringe in his right hand and held it upward, needle pointing at the ceiling. Working in a deadpan, businesslike manner, he used his left hand to pry my big toe away from the toe beside it to make a space where he could inject me. He brought the syringe's needle down toward my foot. I flicked my arm and threw the locket at him. It was a good throw. Or maybe his head, leaning down over his homicidal work, just gave me a big target. Or maybe there was some galleon and magic in the locket itself. I don't know. But the locket, the locket with its extra heavy load of bizarro energy, smacked hard into the thug's temple. The blow knocked Billiard Ball's head to one side. He dropped the syringe. It fell onto the carpet to the left of me. With a great shout and a mighty effort, I threw my arm across my body, my shoulder lifting with the motion. I found the syringe and grabbed hold of the barrel. All this took less than a second, but long enough for Billiard Ball to recover from his surprise. A flicker of annoyance crossed his face as he saw me go for the syringe. He reached out and clamped his hand around my wrist in a grip of steel. He held me fast. There was no way I could get the syringe anywhere near him. So I shifted my hand in his grip, bent the wrist, aimed the needle at him, and pressed the plunger down with my thumb. Whatever poison was in the tube squirted out in a thin, steady stream, I pointed the stream at his face, then bent my wrist further and slashed the stream across his nose until it hit him smack in the eye. Billiard ball let out a monstrous roar of pain. He let me go and clutched at his eye with both hands. His huge body fell sideways against the bed. My muscles were still stiff and half frozen. Grunting loudly, I managed to turn myself over onto my side, then my belly. I dropped the empty syringe and pressed both palms into the carpet. I pushed myself up. It felt as if there were a huge block of cement on my back. I crawled a few inches, just trying to put some distance between me and the killer in that tiny room. I reached the particle board dresser. I could hear billiard ball cursing in pain behind me, but I didn't look back. I grabbed the dresser, the drawer handles. I dragged myself up to my knees. Letting out another shout of desperate effort, I grabbed hold of the dresser top and hauled myself to my feet. My legs felt like spaghetti under me. I had to will the strength back into them. I saw my image rise into the mirror as I rose. A face like a corpse, three days buried. I heard a noise behind me. I saw a billiard ball in the mirror, too. He was rising, too, clawing his way up the vomit-colored bedspread as he got his feet on the floor beneath him. His eyes streaming, his teeth gritted in fury. He hoisted his torso onto the bed. The room was so small we were barely a foot apart. No way I could get past him to the door. I needed a weapon. Now. The lamp on the dresser. It was all there was. I grabbed hold of it. It was heavy. The wire ran over the side of the dresser and was plugged into the wall behind. I looked over my shoulder at Billiard Ball. He looked at me. His one good eye was aflame with rage. His jacket had fallen open to expose the holster under his arm. Oh, God, he had a gun! Of course he did. I lifted the lamp, no more than a few inches. The cord held it in place after that. I yanked the lamp as hard as I could. It didn't come free. I yanked it again. Billiard ball reached into his jacket for his gun. There was a pounding knock at the door. It startled us both into a moment of inaction. We both looked at the door. An old woman's voice came through it. It was the woman at the front desk. The bent, nearly humpbacked old woman who had checked me into the motel. What's going on in there? Stop it, whatever it is. I called the police. They're on the way. She pounded on the door again. Bang, bang, bang. My face twisted in strain. I yanked the lamp with all my might. The cord broke, snapped away from the plug, spitting orange sparks. Billiard Ball worked himself up into a sitting position on the edge of the bed. He drew his gun out of the holster. Bang, bang, bang at the door. The police are coming screamed the motel lady. Billiard ball aimed the gun at me and pulled the trigger. I swung the base of the lamp at him as hard as I could. It smacked him in the side of the head, full force. The gun went off. The noise in that small room was like the end of the world, only louder. I thought I felt the bullet whistle by my ear. The mirror shattered behind me. Billiard ball wobbled where he sat, stunned by the blow from the lamp. When the deafening gun blast subsided, everything seemed muffled and far away. Weirdly quiet and dreamlike. Was the old lady still pounding on the door? I didn't know. I couldn't hear. Was billiard ball making some sort of noise through his contorted features? Maybe. I wasn't sure. But I could see, see through a hazy daze, that the thug was coming to his senses, bringing the bore of the pistol around to point at me again. If there was any advantage to my time in Galliana, it was this. I had learned how to focus and how to fight, On this side of my existence, here, in what I laughingly called the real world, I had always been a nerd, a wimp, the sort of guy who knew how to smile and snigger and shuffle on by without getting noticed by anyone who would do him harm. But in Galeana, in Galeana, I was a knight in armor. I had battled for my life. I had dueled with expert swordsmen and watched them die on the point of my blade. I had learned that I could clear my mind. I had learned that I could focus even through panic. I had learned that I could kill. What little skill I'd acquired, what little skill and what little courage, I had brought back with me here to California. So now, as Billiard Ball turned the gun on me again, I didn't flinch, I just went at him. Gripping the neck of the desk lamp, I swung the base at him again, at his gun this time. As I brought the lamp around, the lampshade snapped off and fell, leaving the bulb bare. The heavy bass hit Billiard Ball's hand His gun went flying. It dropped to the floor. It spun a few inches over the carpet and came to rest by the door. I rushed for it. Or tried to. As I went to get past him, Billiard Ball lunged off the bed and tackled me. I fell on my back. He fell on top of me. He wrapped his hands around my throat and closed them tight. I couldn't breathe. I tried to swing the base of the lamp up at his head, but I couldn't get any leverage. I couldn't put any force into it. And now... Billiard Ball shifted his massive body and drove his knee into my bicep, pinning it to the rug. And all the while, he went on strangling me. I gagged. My mouth came open. My tongue stuck out. I could feel my eyes bulging. Blue spots floated in the air around me. The spots turned black. Billiard Ball's enormous, bald head leaned down toward me. His twisted face filled my field of vision. I was still deaf from the gunshot. Everything around me seemed far away and dreamy. I was sinking toward unconsciousness, toward death. I shifted the lamp in my hand. I bent my elbow. I stabbed the lamp upward, hard, driving the bare light bulb into Billiard Ball's face. The bulb exploded on impact. I closed my eyes as glassy dust spilled down over me, but I felt Billiard Ball's hands fly off my throat. I felt his weight fly off my body. I sucked air into my lungs as I squirmed away from him, as I turned over and tried to rise, the glass pouring off my face in a sprinkling sheet. On my side, I opened my eyes and looked. I saw Billiard Ball sitting with his back against the dresser. He was clutching his face. He was rocking his body. Blood was pouring out between his fingers. I still held the lamp in my hand, the broken bulb now just a jagged shard of glass sticking out of the socket at the end. My ears were beginning to clear. I could hear something, a siren, more than one police cars approaching from who knows how far away. I had to get out of there. I knew the police could kill me just as quickly as Billiard Ball could, and they would if they were in Orozco's pay. I rose to my knees, grunting. Billiard Ball dropped his hands. His face was a mass of blood, with one blood-streaked eye and his gritted teeth showing white through the scarlet. He let out a wild roar of rage and threw himself at me, his hands reaching for my throat again. Reflexively, I jabbed the lamp at him like a bayonet. The force of my movement and the force of his combined and he was impaled. The broken glass of the bulb sank into the side of his neck and part of the metal socket followed it. He was pinned in midair. As he fell back, the lamp dropped out of him and the blood spurted after it, dousing my face and shoulder. Billiard ball dropped to the floor in indescribably awful paroxysms. I stared in open-mouthed horror as he thrashed and died in a shower of gore. A moment later, he lay still. There was blood everywhere. I was covered with it. So was the rug. There were red streaks on the bedspread and the walls. I could still hear sirens. They were louder now and growing even louder fast. Gasping, I pulled myself up onto the bed, then rolled off it, onto my feet. I stumbled to the table, to the window. I looked out. Through the white haze of the privacy curtains, I could see the flashing red lights of police cars racing into the parking lot. My silver Camaro, my sister's boyfriend's car, was parked right outside, right beside the door. But there was no way to get to it with first one cop car, then two, bounding over the sidewalk ramp and shooting across the lot toward me. A moment later, the first car braked, tires screeching. Two officers leapt out, their guns drawn. A third uniform stepped out of the second car, even as it swerved to a stop. I had to get out of here. I looked around me. There was only one possible exit, a locked door that led into the next room over. Fighting down the urge to puke my guts out, I forced myself to head across the room, squinting through the blood on my face, weaving like a drunken man. Billiard ball lay sprawled across my path, splayed in the narrow aisle between the bed and the dresser. His head was propped against the dresser so that his still open eyes, white in his red-drenched face, seemed to stare at nothing. His gun lay on the rug near his motionless right hand. Bethere's locket lay right beside it. I stepped over him, trying not to look. But I had to bend down to retrieve the gun and the locket. As I did, those dead eyes of his stared right into mine. It sent a chill through my entire body. I straightened, the gun in my fist the locket chain dangling from my fingers. I slipped the chain over my head as I walked unsteadily to the back of the room. Behind me, still somewhat muffled in my blown-out ears, I could hear a fist pounding on the room door. I could hear a voice shouting, Police! Open up! I reached the other door, the locked door. It had no knob, just a deadbolt protruding from the wood. I lifted the gun and slammed the butt of it down onto the mechanism. Once, then again. It was all cheap stuff. The deadbolt came loose on the first blow. On the second blow, it fell from its hole and dropped to the floor. The police went on shouting. Open up or we're coming in. They pounded on the room door again to make their point. I pushed on the inner door. It rattled in its frame. Using what little was left of my strength, I lifted my leg and kicked it just beneath where the deadbolt had been. The door gave way, flew open. I gasped aloud. There was Galeana right in front of me, the hazy ghost of another country, a fantasy of night and distance shimmering on the far side of the threshold. This was a new magic. It had only happened once before, earlier that day in the police station in Los Angeles. There, for the first time, I had seen the veil of transition from this world to the other before I stepped through it. It was as if my mind was adjusting to the bizarre fact of my impossible double life, as if it were beginning to get some control over the seemingly random passages back and forth. Or maybe my brain tumor was just advancing to the point where the hallucinations seemed more real than they had before. Who knew, not me. In any case, when I kicked the door in, I saw Galliana, the dark and starry landscape outside the walls of the town of Eastrum. From where I stood in the motel, I could even hear the faint noises of battle as the freedom fighters of the Forest King Torritanio fought against Lord Iron's oppressive armies. I hesitated one more second, panicked, half mad. I was standing there, bathed in blood with a dead man on the floor behind me and the police about to come bursting through the door, their guns blazing. And yet, even so, even so, I felt a weary sadness wash over me as I contemplated going back into that other world, that world where I had failed in my duty so entirely, where I had left my lover dead and where my heart had been broken. But the pounding of fists on the motel room door grew louder and more insistent. The shouts of the police grew angrier, more intense. This is your last chance. Open this door or we come in shooting. I took one last glance around the blood-soaked room. Then I stepped through the veil into another kingdom
0: we'll get back to the story in a minute if you're listening to this on itunes we really appreciate it and we'd appreciate your five-star rating it really helps us out you should know also that you're missing out on the incredible work of our really talented animators and illustrators who've created an amazing visual experience on our website so head over to dailywire.com and become a subscriber you won't be sorry and now back to the story
1: Of all the strange things about Galliana, the strangest might have been this. I could not hold on to my sense of its reality. When I was back in L.A., I could not believe in it at all, not truly. No matter how many scars I returned with, no matter how much grief or what memories, I felt my adventures there must have all been a dream or an hallucination. But then, then, the minute, the very instant, I stepped across some threshold somewhere and returned to the castles and enchanted forests and wasted plains. Then suddenly, it was all as solid and alive as any place I had ever been. Then there could be no question about its substance. It was as there as there could be. That's how it was now. A moment ago, under siege in my cheap motel outside Salinas, this kingdom seemed no more than a symptom of some brain dysfunction. A split second later, after I walked through that door, here I utterly was, astride my black stallion in an open field, galloping into the autumn night. The mist of the ancient Eastrum graveyard, where the great battle had been waged, where the emanations of the dead had fought over the souls of the fallen, where Lady Bethere had died in my arms, while her spirit rose and vanished into the upper atmosphere, that mist was gone. The air was thin and chilly and clear as a bright new windowpane. The stars were strewn across the sable sky like diamond dust. At my back, centaurs, bathed in the rainbow light from swirling hordes of fairies, battled against human warriors while peak-capped trolls fought to keep the city gates open in order to allow Toritonio's army of forest creatures to retreat and escape. No, really, that's what was happening right behind me but I couldn't stop to watch. All I could do was take advantage of the melee and confusion and spur my stallion in a hot gallop over the fields toward the deeper darkness of the forest in the far distance. I rode and rode hard. Soon the woods surrounded me. The still black trees stood like still black sentinels watching me pass. Their tangled branches hung above me, silhouetted against the stars. Their dried and dying leaves chattered in the wind. I rode and rode and finally slowed, then stopped. For the first time, I became aware that I was exhausted. The battle here, the death of Betharae, the fight with billiard ball back in California. They had sapped all my strength. My body felt like a dead weight. Even my mind seemed heavy as lead. I slid off my horse like human gelatin. I plunked down on my ass on the forest floor, open-mouthed, staring, still holding the reins in my hand. I was panting, wheezing. I couldn't catch my breath. I was dazed with shock and weariness. Waves of emotion passed over me. Flashes of memory. Bethere sagging lifeless in my arms. My escape from LA and the speeding silver Camaro. Billiard ball thrashing on the motel floor, spewing blood as the police sirens came closer, grew louder. All of this had happened within the space of a few hours. I felt used up, hollowed out, as if there were nothing left inside me. I dropped onto my back with a heavy sigh, dead leaves kicking up around me as I fell. I lay there and stared stupidly up through the darkness, up at where the stars winked out from behind the branches. I began to weep. I know, wimpy, but I couldn't help it. It was Beth It was my failure to protect her. It was the dead man in the motel and the cops coming after me, They'd still be there pounding on the motel door whenever I got back, if I did get back. It was the despair. It was the loneliness. It was everything. I mean, after all, what was I? Just some guy. Just some gormless schmo who'd been trying to make it in the movie business without much success. Another Hollywood wannabe circling the career drain. In a few more years, I'm sure I would have given up the whole enterprise. I would have gone back to school like my parents wanted. I would have gotten some teaching job at some college somewhere, married some girl, had some kids. From time to time, I would have reminisced about my wild and crazy years in showbiz. The toxic sting of failure would have faded to a dull throb. I'd have gotten over it. Sure, I would have. Not everyone's dreams come true. But instead, it was this. I was here, in the dark woods with the branches creaking, with the leaves chattering and God knows what animals making God knows what noises off in the tangled blackness of the night. I could almost hear the voice of my friend, the mutant squirrel woman, Maude. I could almost hear her weird buzzing screech telling me, Be a man, Austin! Be a man! But I couldn't do it. I couldn't be a man. I lay there on my back on the dead leaves and cried like a baby. Wah, wah, wah some hero. I don't know when exactly my eyes sank shut, but the next thing I knew the sun was slanting low across the earth in misty beams all around me. The cheery birds were tweet-tweet-tweeting in the trees. The red and green and yellow leaves were dancing in the air above me. I sat up. I remembered the night before. The sobbing. I shook my head in self-disgust and cursed myself for a weakling. Then I climbed to my feet. I was ready to begin my quest. I washed my face in a nearby rill. I knelt on the bank and drank the clear, quick water from my cupped hands. I stood and pissed in the leaves beneath a maple tree. Then I mounted my stallion again. I rode. Here was the deal, the quest. I was wearing a talisman around my neck, a golden pendant on a golden chain. It had an S-shaped bolt carved into its center. It was a gift to the good Queen Elinda from her fiancé. The Emperor Anastasius. Anastasius was currently fighting a war on the far side of the Eleven Lands, wherever the hell that was. My mission, my quest, was to bring this talisman to him as a signal that Elinda was in danger. Then he and his armies would drive out of the east to defeat Lord Iron and restore the Queen to her throne. Let wisdom reign and each man go his way. That was our password, we of the Queen's party. Our password and our battle cry, That was the sort of world we were supposed to be defending. Now, it probably goes without saying, I had no idea how I was going to accomplish what I was supposed to accomplish. My friend Maud had instructed me to keep the North Star on my left shoulder and follow the rising sun. Eventually, she said, the Emperor Anastasius would call to me, somehow. So that was the plan, such as it was. I saw the fiery disk of the sun burning white through the farthest trees, and I headed toward it. After a long while, I broke out of the forest, and I just kept riding toward that yellowing fire. Galliana was a country with a blasted Gothic beauty. Seer fields, abandoned towers, impoverished shacks, and dark, forbidding woods. There were people here and there along the way, but no one I would have stopped and spoken to. They were, all of them, hungry and feral-looking, their eyes baleful, their lips white, their bodies tense and jittery as if they were getting ready to pounce and devour you. I'm told when the good queen reigned, it was all different here, all lush and serene and joyful. But now, even in the bright fall morning, it looked to me like an old black-and-white horror movie. Everything slanted and gloomy, vaguely haunted, vaguely strange. Still, it was autumn, harvest time. There were fields here and there with gleanings left on them, ears of corn my horse and I could peck at some peppers and the like. I even found an apple tree with a few ripe apples left. That kept us going for a while. I rode until dark, then slept in a rickety shed, then mounted and rode again, then slept, then rode. Toward dusk, the third day, I felt a change in the atmosphere around me. It began with a thin stream of fresher, cooler air that smelled like springtime. It curled alluringly beneath my nostrils like the aroma of baking bread. Weary as I was, I sat up straighter on my horse. The air grew even cooler, even fresher. My heart stirred and rose. I came to the top of a ridge and looked down on the view spreading out below me. I knew right away I had come into a different country. The grass was green here. Wild flowers, yellow, purple, and white were scattered everywhere. Great white clouds sailed like mighty ships across the deepening blue of the twilight horizon chalky hills rose in the distance. And at their feet, in the midst of freshly harvested fields, there was a village. It was a jolly-looking little place, not fancy or anything, just a cluster of little buildings with the hills looming over them. But the houses were all clean and attractive. Their thatched rooftops were decked with brightly colored pennants. Their walls were whitewashed and decorated with newly painted beams. All in all, it was a welcoming, homey, neighborly sight Hungry, lonely, weary, I spurred my stallion and started down the slope toward the village. As I approached, I could make out men and women going about their business, hauling sheaves into red barns, driving oxen and their plows through fields of golden stubble. The sun, sinking toward the horizon behind me, blanketed the entire scene with a warm orange glow. But as I came near the village, the people stopped whatever they were doing and stood watching me people in the fields and among the buildings, too. They all stopped where they were and stood and stared at me with expressionless faces. There was no sound of voices. There was no breeze. Everything was suddenly motionless and quiet. It felt odd, more than odd. Well, I shrugged it off. They weren't used to seeing strangers here. That's all, I told myself. Why else would they be gawking at me like that? There was nothing particularly weird about me. I had cleaned the blood off my face and hands. There were still bruises on my neck from where billiard ball choked me. I had seen them in my reflection in some pooled water a while back. But how strange were bruises? They couldn't be gaping at those, could they? And it couldn't be the magic sword at my side or the liquid armor that would sometimes cover me. They were invisible. They only appeared when I went into battle. No, I was dressed in plain brown clothes, like a stable hand. And if I was a bit grimy from travel, what about it? None of that explained why they were just standing there, just staring at me like that. Yet they were, all of them. I reached the village and came among the buildings. No one moved. Every single person I could see had stopped dead in his tracks and was gazing my way. I tried nodding to a few of them. I even smiled, but there was no reaction. No one smiled back. They just kept staring. It really was downright eerie. In fact, close up like this, I saw the people themselves were kind of bizarre looking. I wasn't sure what it was about them at first. Then I realized they all looked sort of the same somehow. I mean, they were all different enough at first glance. There were short ones and tall ones, fat and skinny, blonde, brunette, redhead, but they were all dressed in the same rough brown cotton shirts. And more than that, their faces, their features, their eyes, noses, mouths, they were also similar, small and vague, like they were pinched in putty, doll-like, like the features of something fashioned rather than someone born. I spotted a tavern at the center of the town. The Invisible Woman, that was the name on the sign dangling from a post above the door. Out on the dirt street in front, there was a hitching rail with a drinking trough like the ones I'd seen in movie westerns. I dismounted and threw the stallion's reins over the rail like I'd seen the movie Cowboys do. My horse whiffled and lapped at the water. Aside from that, the village was absolutely silent. The villagers, all the villagers, every single one, just went on standing there, standing and staring at me without making a sound. I stared back, turning my eyes from one to another of them. And I thought suddenly, no children. That was strange too, wasn't it? Shouldn't there be children here? But there were none. I let out a long breath. I turned away from those staring, samey faces. I walked to the tavern door. I pushed inside. Like the town, the tavern seemed a nice enough place to look at, at first. At first, it seemed warm and welcoming. Big windows let in lots of the last sunlight. A chandelier with burning candles cast a dancing glow. So did the burning torches in sconces on the wall. A great big blaze in the great big fireplace spread its heat across the whole room, wall to wall. It all seemed very bright and cheery. There were two men standing at the long bar. Each had an ale and one fist. Each had one foot up on the wooden rail. They were looking over their shoulders at me. There was a young man and a woman seated at a rough wooden table to my left. There was an older man and an older woman at a table to my right. They were all silent. They were all turned my way. They were all staring. Their doll-like features were all the same. I was starting to feel well and truly creeped out by now. But I was starving, too. I needed something to eat. I walked up to the bar. A woman was standing there, her back to me. She was round as a ball, dressed in the same brown shift as everyone else. Round-headed, round-bodied, no shape to her but round. Just as I stepped to the bar, she turned and faced me. My breath caught. She had the same face as all the others the round version of the same small featured face not a woman's face either not a woman's and not a man's sexless and the eyes were pinched and suspicious weak and afraid like she had a secret and she was worried i'd find it out they all looked like that the barkeep was holding a beaker of beer in her fist she set it down on the bar top with a whopping bang my eyes went to the frothing head and i felt my mouth begin to water it's on me came a voice at my back. I turned and saw another woman just coming in. She was very tall, very broad-shouldered, with long brown hair that fell to the curve of the large breasts shaping her brown shift. She wore a bright white ribbon slantwise across her chest. I guessed it was the mark of an official position. Other than that, she looked... Well, she looked like everyone else, like the bartender and the drinkers, and also like the people who were now slipping in through the door behind her. I'm the mayor of this city, the woman said. She stepped toward me, expressionless, but with her hand outstretched. Mayor Adriana. I shook her hand. Her grip was powerful, not like a woman's grip at all. Come to think of it, it was sort of surprising to see a woman serving as mayor in these medieval surroundings. Not that I was a scholar of history or anything. It just seemed like a medieval female mayor was the sort of thing you'd see in a fantasy movie or a novel, not in real life. But then, was this real life? Who the hell knew, right? All the same, if I was creeped out before, I was more creeped out now. A sense of actual horror was growing in me. But why? I wasn't sure. Meanwhile, more and more villagers were pushing in through the door behind the mayor. One after another, they spread out across the tavern, slowly filling the large room. As each one found a spot for himself, he would stop there, stop and stare at me silently. A growing crowd, standing there, staring, silent. It really was getting on my nerves. I said, well, thanks, for the beer. That's nice of you, thanks. And, uncomfortable under her strange gaze, under all their strange, silent gazes, I looked away, and my eyes were caught by something on the wall behind her. An empty space, a large rectangle paler than the wood around it, and with a nail sticking out near the top. It seemed a picture had hung there and had only recently been taken down. Sure enough, when I lowered my eyes, I saw it, in the corner, a large framed painting leaning against the wall, facing the wall so I couldn't get a glimpse of it. What was it a painting of, I wondered. Who had removed it? And why was it just leaning there like that? The mayor gave a high, trilling, ladylike laugh that somehow didn't suit her. It seemed put on, Fake. It's just my way of saying welcome, she said. Welcome to you, Austin Lively. I straightened as if an electric bolt had gone through me. It was always a little strange to hear my name spoken in this otherworldly world, as if I were a character in a movie I had never seen. But to have it spoken here, after three days' ride from any place I knew, in an obscure little village, in an obscure little valley, in a country I had never heard of or been to, Well, that was downright spooky, supremely spooky, shocking, really. I mean, what the hell was going on? And all the while, the bar was filling up with villagers, and the villagers with their sexless, doll-like faces just looked at me, just stared, saying nothing. You know me, I said to the mayor. How do you know me? Your fame has spread, she said with a friendly wink of one small eye. Then she gestured at the bar behind me. Help yourself. I was about to ask my question, but at her gesture, I glanced over my shoulder and, as I did, I was struck full force with a smell that made my stomach growl like a beast. The round woman behind the bar was just now setting a meat pie down beside the beaker of beer. The aroma was rich and delicious, and I was ravenous after my long ride. Licking my lips, I nodded my thanks at the mayor. That's very kind of you. Really. Would you mind if I... I swallowed hard. I haven't had a meal in days please said the mayor in a peculiarly bland tone dig in i probably should have heeded my sense of unease or horror or whatever it was but i was just too damned hungry to care i stepped back to the bar there was a spoon by the pie plate i grabbed it by the spirally metal handle and dug into the pie when the spoon's tip broke through the crust steam came up to my face oh lord steam filled with that rich, warm, meaty smell. I lost all reticence and began scooping the thick confection into my eager mouth. I ignored the villagers, ignored the staring eyes that I knew were boring into my back. I forgot all about them. I ate and ate. Only when I was halfway through the pie, only as the ache of my hunger began to subside, did I try to carry on the conversation. What is this place anyway? I said to the mayor through a succulent mouthful. I grabbed the beaker and washed the food down with ale. Am I still in Galliana? The mayor had not moved from where she stood. I had to turn sideways so I could see her and stuff my face at the same time. No, she told me. You left Galeana miles back. You have entered the 11 lands. This is the village of Newfell in the country of Edgenmund. Seems like a nice place. I went on, scarfing pie, swigging beer, It has a whole different climate, a whole different feel. It's almost like it's a different season here. Yes, spring. It's always spring. Really? That's a neat trick. Is it the mountains that do that? Do they create some kind of microclimate or something? The mountains? The mountains? Why no? When I glanced at her again, I thought she was examining me, tilting her head and studying me, measuring me as if she were judging my looks or my physical condition or something. The rest of the villagers were as they had been, just standing, just staring. It is the work of our nation's governor, said the mayor. We are under his protection. He guards us against the consequences. The consequences, I said. Of the revolution in Galliana, you mean? When the mayor didn't answer, I glanced up from the ruin of my meat pie and saw her smiling. Smiling as if to herself with a distant, dreamy look of satisfaction in her eyes. Whatever she'd been searching for in the look of mine, she'd obviously found it. What consequences? I asked again. What? Oh, all of them, she said. Revolution? Winter? Tragedy? None of them happens here. I laughed nervously through my growing unease. Wow! Good deal. Who is this governor of yours, God? She laughed right back at me. God, she said, hardly God. God is all consequences. And she shifted her pinched doll eyes away from me. She looked down at something else, the painting maybe, the painting leaning against the wall. Hard to be sure, hard to see anything, but the villagers, their faces. They were everywhere now. The room was packed with them. Plus, night had fallen at the windows. And while the chandelier and torches and firelight filled the tavern with a deep orange glow, it was darker than it had been. There were deep, wavering shadows in every corner. I blinked hard to clear my head. The pie. The ale. I had been so hungry, and now I was so full. A thick, sated feeling muddied my mind. And yet I wanted more, to eat more. How, I said thickly, scooping out another spoonful of meat. He never answered my question. How did you know my name? Slowly, the mayor lifted her gaze back to me. It came to us, she said. It came to us upon the fabric of the air whispered by the spirits of the inferno that stretches across all universes and all dimensions. It became part and parcel of the identity with which our master blinds and blesses and rules us all and will one day rule the very framework of eternity. I had lifted my spoon halfway from the pie plate to my mouth, and there my hand froze. Uh, what, I said. The mayor's tone of voice had changed. All at once, it was hollow and empty and weirdly musical. The voice of a ghost calling up the cellar stairs. Her eyes were suddenly bright. I mean, scarily bright, lantern bright. Even worse, even stranger. Everyone's eyes were suddenly bright. All the villagers were now staring at me with white, bright eyes, their little mouths curling up into sharp, nearly V-shaped grins. Why? what did you say? I asked again, but I could barely get the words out. The spoon fell from my slack fingers. It dropped onto the pie plate with a soft, nauseating splash. I was dizzy. I was swaying. I gripped the edge of the bar to hold myself steady. There was a noise. There was motion. I looked around me. It was even harder to see now than it had been before. Was it the nightfall? Was the fire dying? The room seemed sunk in shadow. The shadow seemed distorted by a wavery mist, as if the whole place were suddenly underwater. Through that oscillating atmosphere, I saw that the villagers had begun to move. Bright-eyed, grinning, they were stirring from their places, as if they had just awakened from some sort of standing coma. Some were reaching up to take the long wigs off their heads. Some were reaching inside their blouses to remove and withdraw bra-like contraptions containing fake breasts. The mayor herself was sliding her long hair down the side of her face. It gave the strangest impression through the gathering fog. It looked as if her head were melting. I widened my eyes, trying to clear my vision. I stared at her, squinting through the gathering gloom. Except she wasn't a her the mayor. She wasn't a woman at all. She was a man in dress-up. I turned and looked around the room. It was the same with all the women. They were all men in dress-up. Once they removed their wigs and fake breasts, once all the villagers revealed themselves to be male, they all looked even more alike than they had before. They all had the same blandly brown-colored hair now and their features, what I could make out of their features as they went in and out of focus, Their features, which before had seemed androgynous, had become clearly the features of men. Dead-hearted, feminized men. It was as if I were standing in a room full of eunuch zombies. A whole village full of eunuch zombies. By now, of course, I realized I'd been poisoned. The fog in the tavern was really fog inside my mind, and it was growing thicker by the moment. All those faces, those identical, grinning, bright-eyed, malevolent faces, were blurring and slurring together. My mouth was hanging open, and I somehow couldn't gather the strength to close it. I lost my grip on the bar, and when I tried to grab it again, I knocked the pie plate off. I heard its wobbly clatter on the floor, as if from far away. I sensed more movement in the room. I turned toward it, turned painfully as if my neck had rusted on my shoulders. I saw two men, one of them still with a woman's figure. They were lifting the painting that had been leaning in the corner lifting it up above the heads of the others, lifting it until they could hang it on the nail at the top of the pale rectangle on the wall, back where it had been hanging until just before I came in. A short man wearing a robe of deepest indigo that flowed around him like liquid night. His face was shriveled and wrinkled and yet somehow ageless. He had a tuft of gray hair on his head and another on his chin. His eyes were small, but they burned and boiled with a lava-red intensity of malignant power. I knew him. Curtin, the evil wizard who had helped depose the Queen of Galliana. He was the one who had manipulated the minds of the people, made them believe they were building a utopia even as they transformed their country into a hellhole. The Queen's justice gave to each what he deserved, but Curtin had promised to give all to everyone. It was he who had turned that once free and lovely nation into an oppressive wasteland. Lord Iron ruled there, but Curtin was the real power. And he was the guardian of Newfell Village, it turned out, the governor of the land of Edgemond, the leader who protected these people from the consequences, all the consequences. And he had turned them into what they were, whatever that was. I tried to speak his name aloud. I couldn't. My legs buckled under me. I clutched desperately at the bar, trying to stay on my feet. Had they killed me? Was I dying now? Helpless, I tumbled to the floor. Next time on Another Kingdom. My gaze passed over piles and piles of corpses. The people had been lowered down here and then... Then they had been slaughtered, torn to pieces. I could see that some of their corpses had been partially eaten. I looked around me at the cave walls. This was a place of sacrifice. But sacrifice to whom? To what? What awful creature was down here with me? The very second that question entered my mind, the answer came. The earth shook underneath me. I heard a thunderous pounding from deep within the foggy corridor to my right. One reverberating thud, and then another, and then another after that. It was the sound of footsteps, the footsteps of something monstrous.
0: And, whatever it was, it was slowly coming toward me. This has been Another Kingdom by Andrew Claven, performed... By Michael Knowles. This episode directed and produced by Jonathan Hay. Produced by Mathis Glover. Executive producer Jeremy Boring. Associate producer Austin Stevens. Edited by Jim Nickel. Sound design and mix by Mike Cormina. Music composed by Adrian Seely. Hair, Makeup, and Wardrobe by Jessua Alvera. D.I.T. by Scott Key. And our production assistant is Colton Haas. Visual Supervisor, Jake Jackson. Lead Illustrator, Rebecca Shapiro. Illustrations by Anthony Clark. Animations by Cynthia Angulo and Cole Holloway. Another Kingdom is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production, Forward Publishing 2018.